Welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. Today on the show, whew, there's a big part two. There's a huge part two for me. Chris Hanna from Propagandi is back on the show. One of the all-time great guests on Turned Out a Punk has come back again for another conversation this one, though, is, is a little more depressing than the last time. It's, uh, I think the state of the world has shifted, and, and Chris and I uh, got caught up in the moment. But you'll hear all about that in one second. But first, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turnedoutapunk at gmail.com. You can also find me on various forms of social media, at Damien. If you're looking to get in contact with the show itself, there is various forms of social media that is done by my brother, Tristan Abraham, show producer, guest booker extraordinaire, just all around. Why oh, is my brother? I love him. I love him so much. Anyway, Tristan is the person to get in touch with at at Turned Out a Punk on Instagram, Facebook.com slash Turned Out a Punk. Uh, all, all other pl- Turned Out a Punk needs that you have, direct your attention over to Tristan Abraham because he is the the big supporter of this show. The big he's the foundation on which I have stuck the turned out of punk house, you know, and he's what's keeping it from floating into the ocean. That's thank you, Tristan. Thank you. Speaking of thank you, this show would not be possible without the kind, generous, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came on board a couple years ago and said, you know what, Damien, just do your podcast, do your podcast, no matter how you do it. We just want you to do it, not out of your own pocket, which has been amazing. And so thank you so much to Vans. House of Vans stuff is going on all summer. There's been a bunch that have been happening so far, a bunch more coming up in the next few weeks, including Converge and, and some surprises. Some big surprises are going to drop and oh, I'm excited for you to all hear those or see those or experience those. And yeah, so if you're in the Chicago area or anywhere else, there's one of these House of Vans events popping up, go check it out. It's like amazing art. It's, it's great music. It's free. If you drink, there's drinks. If you eat food, there's food. I think we all eat food, but there's there's normally food. It's it's a fun time. It's a, it's a super fun time. They're just in Rapture and Rich Jacobs. Rich Jacobs, who put out the Brotherhood 7-inch, also played in Atomic Dilemma, also did art for Iceburn and, and so many bands. So, you know, they, they've got their fingers deep in this punk rock world. So thank you, everyone at Vans, for supporting this podcast and making it all possible. Also speaking of support, thank you everyone who's been supporting the wrestlers. It will be continuing to be showed around the world as the year goes on. Right now it's on in England on Wednesday nights at 10 PM. It's also on demand in America coming soon to Canada and Benelux and eventually hopefully Japan and Spain and, and, and Mexico and, and the like. So that will be coming to you soon, but continue supporting that show. If you enjoy wrestling and if you don't enjoy wrestling, give it a chance. I promise you, I promise you, even if you hate wrestling, there is something in that show for you. That's the wrestlers on Viceland. And that's about it. I don't think, uh, oh, Fucked Up's got some stuff coming up. Oh, we're going to be going to Australia. Maybe you've seen that. We're going to be coming to Australia in October. Uh, Trying to think of what else is going on. I've always got too much stuff going on. So I I never remember (laughs) what I'm supposed to talk about when I sit down. Uh, Also, Patreon. Thank you to everyone who's supporting the Patreon. Uh, over there at patreon.com slash turned out a punk and uh, continue to support that. And I will continue to uh, hopefully uh, give you content you want because that's what I'm trying to do. Give you the content you want. Speaking of the content you want this week on the show, we have a guest that I have wanted to come back for a very long time. Chris Hanna from the band Propagandi, Tristan, show producer, Booker, aforementioned, has also been chomping at the bit to get Chris back on and harangued Chris until he was able to come back on, find time to work it out and we could make it happen. And Chris and I got together after, I guess, a long day of being parents and and people that play in bands and just people that are looking out in the world wondering what the fuck's going on. And we just vented to each other. This is a uh, an interesting conversation with a guy who is an unbelievably huge influence on me in, in so many ways, not just as a musician and a songwriter and a lyricist, but just, just as like a, a person that's trying to be a conscious person in this world and trying to be aware in this world. And, and I really owe a lot of my early awareness to 
the stuff that Chris and Propagandi were pointing out to me. So, uh, yeah, it, it, this is a, uh, it's, it's a great conversation with someone who, um, had a huge impact on me in the beginning. And now here we are <laughs> reflecting on, uh, a, a, a terrible time, a terrible time in humanity, a terrible time in our lifetimes. And, uh, yeah, we're just looking at what's going on in the world and, and lamenting. And you get to enjoy that lament. There's more than that going on in this episode, but that's certainly something that uh, when I listened back to it, it became abundantly clear that we are not, you know, the first time around, if you want to hear Chris talk about just music and how fun music is, yeah, check out Chris part one. This is definitely a little bit different than that. Uh, there's also some talk about uh, punk rock voter, punk voter and fat Mike. Um, this is nothing Chris hasn't said before on the subject and the topic of their relationship with fat records or anything like that. But I think the reason I want to keep it in right now and the reason I find it really interesting is because the world has shifted so much. Uh, I was wondering if Chris's perspective on the topic of punk voter has shifted and, and you'll hear it's a, it's a, uh, yeah, it's interesting, very interesting topic to discuss. And I, long for the day when fat Mike can come on and we can just talk about punk voter and, and his thoughts on it. Now, um, for those of you who don't know about it, read up on it. It was a really interesting, I guess, movement that happened in punk rock. Uh, well, I guess came out of punk rock because there was a huge backlash to it from punk music and from hardcore at the time. And, uh, I don't know. I just really was interested in the fact that we live in such a different world now and whether or not, that had changed Chris's views on the subject. So you'll hear that. I just want to give you a little bit of a, a precursor to that side of things. And once again, I hopefully fat Mike comes back on and we can talk to it, to him about the situation as well, because um, it, it's something interesting to talk about. Definitely something interesting to talk about. All right. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. I'm going to let you listen to uh, a amazing, but, uh, little melancholy conversation with Chris Hanna from Propagandi back on turned out a punk. Chris, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Damien, thank you for having an old man on your show. Oh my gosh. No, I, I, this has been so great to talk to a fellow parent off the air before we get on the air and be like, <laughs> You know, we can all relate to the same, uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, blights as a, uh, a punk <laughs> parent <laughs> or a punk adjacent parent at this point for me. Uh, yeah, I'm extremely adjacent <laughs> yeah, myself. Exactly. <laughs> I was extremely adjacent before I was a parent. <laughs> uh, I, I very much understand. Well, because uh, you're back <laughs> on the show for the second time, uh, we got we got pretty deep last time like we i think we kind of as i was telling you we we got to a lot of questions i had been carrying around for a very long time but we kind of ended at uh the second album and so i kind of wanted to pick up from that record on like you mentioned last time that that record was like a complete flop and that you know like i was just wondering like where did that kind of leave you as a band after that record like did you feel that was kind of mission accomplished at that point because you know, you'd said that, you know, there was definitely a process of alienation that you were kind of trying to go through with that second record. Yeah, I think we were, we were partly stoked <laughs> that it, that it flopped because I mean, um, we just, we didn't feel a connection to the, to the scene we suddenly found ourselves in, which was this, uh, Southern California surf skate, um, bro scene. And, and it was, it was the one record where we were a little more, um, deliberate about what we, what we were doing with the songs and how we were, and how we were presenting the whole thing. And, um, it was, it was, I remember feeling a little bit like, cause I was so stoked on the, on the record at the time. I was a little bit disappointed that it, it was such a, you know, a flop in the commercial sense. Um, because I think we were really proud of it. Um, but on the other hand, we, we had at the, at that age, we were like, okay, good. We've drawn the line in the sand. These, these fucking jokers are not going to come to these shows and just fucking riot and fight the whole time because they they don't want to get near 
uh, anybody, uh, any band that has the words gay positive on the front of their record, um, which is, I mean, that's the early 90s for you. That things have obviously changed quite a bit for the better in yeah. that respect. But um, that, I mean, it, it polarized the people who were interested in the band or thought they were in 1993. So when that record came out in 96, it was it uh it galvanized um a small amount of people and it polarized the rest of these jokers so at the time i uh i really appreciated how that how that turned out for us you know the the shows that i mean things didn't totally change it was still the 90s and every show fucking skinheads would show up or whatever you actually it kind of turned the other way you know like uh, the skinheads came because they were mad instead of just showing up because they thought you were some fucking surf band or something you know well i was, was going to say um, did you get targeted at any point by like you know law enforcement your stories about rage against the machine in the 90s getting targeted by law enforcement or like as you say just by skinhead gangs uh it felt like to me it felt like we this is probably the same for every band but you know the movie green room mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. I like, I thought that to me, that was like a autobiography. Yeah. It's every, every show, because we also didn't play the venues that, um, the bands of our apparent genre were playing, you know, more established venues with good security and stuff like that. We were playing VFW halls and things where anybody can walk in and anything could happen inside or outside the venue. And there was always, it's, it seemed like there was always, some element of skit like negative element of skinhead culture or nationalist fucking buffoons that came to fuck up the show. Um, but, um, there is no, but <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> the reality of the time. Um, yeah. well, but also you, you know, I guess the, but for my end would be the fact that I think, you know, was it at that point that you were inviting, because you would have like groups come like local progressive groups, local activist associations and organizations come and and table at shows and sell Mm -hmm. books and stuff. Was that something that you were already doing or is that something you, you kind of developed doing on tour? Because to my knowledge, you're one of the first bands certainly on that level to be doing it. Well, I think, I think the DIY scene, like the base, like, yeah, we were essentially in in 93, we were part of the, the, the basement, uh, I guess the basement scene, the DIY basement scene, which is funny that it was actually a scene, but it truly was. You mm-hmm. went on a tour, a two month tour of the U S and just played people's basements to 15 other people. <laughs> and, uh, th- there was always like, um, there was some, you know, always somebody there, uh, distributing some sort of, uh, political literature. Uh, it, you know, it was, it was bombs was like, was just you know on the rise and uh there's so many things happening at the time and it, because there was no internet it was really exciting to 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 encounter people and these pamphlets or whatever you know in in each new town and we as our band got bigger we wanted to carry that over uh to to the more mainstream crowd that was that we were attracting mm-hmm. um and it's it continues to this day we we don't, it's not quite the fucking, you know, there's not like this, the shows back in the nineties, it would be like, there's more tables and activists than there are people at the show. It know, was like a mini ball point. a little bit at times. I it guess. was, it really was, but we, we pared it down just cause it's like the venues don't like it. And there was all people fighting over table space and there would be like people on the, on the far left who were at odds just you know lots of the the politics of of humanity yes um but we i mean we still do that and we bring books wherever we can we've i mean we've also pared down the titles we used to bring like ak press used to follow us around with a a u-haul trailer and would set up a fucking bookstore every night it was crazy yeah um now it's like we'll do like a couple of select titles that we can actually speak to you know (laughs) You know, instead of just all these fucking random books that we've never even read. Well, that was the thing with AK Press, too. It kind of like, it definitely covered a wide range of political beliefs. It certainly wasn't <laughs> one side of issues. Like, they had they had the Answer Me book. Yeah, they also had, uh, who was that fucking philosopher? They, they made a lot of money off this uh, 
philosopher back in the uh, in the nineties. I can't remember his name. Was it Hakeem Bay? Does that sound familiar? Sounds vaguely familiar. Been, this guy, I'd never read his books, but they they were always like pushing these Hakeem Bay books, and I was like, well, well fuck, I'm, I was kind of hoping you were going to push the anarchist Black Cross stuff, but <laughs> yeah, you know, so you know things. We pared things down over time to kind of make it maybe a little more effective. Yeah, I can understand that. Definitely. It's weird also how it feels like, you know, like at that time there were a lot more organizations directly tied to punk. Yeah. Well, especially with food, not bombs. Yeah. ARA even at that point. ARA in some cities, um, animal liberation front. There was like, I I was, um, saying to people the other day that in the nineties, pretty much everybody took a stab at, uh, some sort of covert, animal activism in the nineties. So yeah. it's just every town you went to, you know, there was like a little ALF faction, either pretend or real. Yeah. You know? yeah, definitely. The cosplay or the actual. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it feels like it's now it's, it's, it's changed, right? Like I, there's obviously certainly politics in it, but I guess it just doesn't feel like as many organizations or these organizations are almost now larger than just punk or maybe punk is, isn't the best way to effectively carry that message at this point? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't really, do you go to any basement shows when you're on the road? I've tried to, but no, let's be on. I'm, I think I would, if I went now, I'd look like a narc. Uh, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just wondering if like, uh, if there is any sort of that culture that still I'm exists, but play it, some basement shows occasionally though, because we're still like, uh, not, we're still like not at a, a level where that's not a reality for us at times. And it, it, it feels like, I don't know. It just feels, it doesn't feel the same. Uh, like maybe it's just people don't need to get their information that way anymore as far or no, art no. or something. Yeah. Social media has utterly displaced, um, the world of the zine. Yeah. And, yeah, definitely. Uh, and the world of the DIY book table with homemade patches on it. Yes. Um, I'm sure some element of that still exists. I'm just totally not tied to anything like that anymore, you know? So mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I just don't know about it. Yeah. Well, if it even feels like, you know, and, it, and once again, it probably is a result of yourselves and, and Fugazi before you, I guess, and at the same time as you too. But like, it felt like that was almost crossing over to, to, as you say, the mainstream bands, like you weren't the only band bringing, <laughs> at groups around by the end of the nineties, right? Like there were other groups that were kind of like, you know, following your lead with some of the same organizations in some cases too, or, or other organizations, or, you know, it felt like it became kind of like on trend for bands. Once again, probably following your suit to do it as well. Yeah, it was, it was kind of cool. Like, uh, I mean, for AK press again, for example, uh, they started going out with tons of different bands, you know, it was, it was, uh, I think it really helped, the nature of it, of the nature of that scene and the nature of bands sort of buying into this idea that the show can be more than just a show, mm. um, did, did help, you know, the, um, the infrastructure of, of, uh, you know, a, a progressive business, a collectively organized business like AK press. And I think there's probably spillover into other, uh, collective businesses, especially back in the nineties. Um, I'm sure a lot of, uh, natural health food stores were bemused by all the punks that would come in and buy their bagels. Yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you took like a four year hiatus between albums at this point too, right? You, between the first record and the second record? No, between or the second and the third. Y- yeah. Well, lots of stuff was happening. It didn't really seem like, I mean, it was never a hiatus. Mm-hmm. It's just like getting, doing anything in our band has always been like herding cats. It's just, it's just, and, and lots of stuff was happening. We were changing a band member at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were trying to, you know, find uh, Todd's place in the band as a songwriter and how, you know, and we were doing sporadic touring, which every time we go on tour, it would, we're not the kind of band that ever writes on the road. Like, no riffs, no lyric, nothing. It's ridiculous. Um, I don't know what you guys do, but, uh, no, I, it's crazy to think about bands doing that. Like you'd have to be a freak to do that. Yeah. That's how I feel about it. 
Lars from Rancid was on and he was talking about how they used to do that at every show. They would go set up sound check and then go to the van and write. Yeah. You know, that's, I mean, that Ugh. is commitment. That is a nightmare scenario for my band. Like that's, for, I mean, it's, it's impossible for our, like yeah. nobody wants to do that in our band <laughs> on the road. We barely want to do it at home. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. It's hard enough to get people in the practice space when they can go back to their own quarters afterwards, let alone when they get out of the van for a nine hour drive. Yeah. Yeah. Let's oh. go write a fucking song. Let's do this. <laughs> I want to kill you. I want to murder <laughs> everyone in this band. Okay, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess it's like you're, you're kind of just, well, cause yeah, Todd joins the band and it's, it, you know, you go on that tour, right? Like that's, that's when the Ontario tour happens in like 98, 97. I think it was 97. 97, okay. Or was it, was it even 96? He, he joined the band in 96. I think, it was 90, it was 97. I think it was 97, actually. You're right. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was... Well, we talked about that last uh, time. You, you guys hate that tour, but like, once again, I think it's amazing how I've, I look back on those shows and I look back at all the people that were at those shows and uh, or, or bands that opened for you at those shows. And like, it was really like, I don't know, like the, the, the heralding of a, I, I said that actually word for word last time you were on the podcast, but it really felt like the new scene kind of coming together. Huh? Weird. Like it was, the, it was the, <laughs> well, there, like you did that Toronto show and it was a perfect mix of the one night you did the basement show in Toronto, which was like the grade and the jerseys. And I think rockets, Rick Blair played. Um, and the next night you did all the kind of more, you know, skate punk bands at the time. Um, you know, and so it was like, it was like the two worlds definitely being brought together in a very real way. I remember you mentioning that last time. I, I, I still am. Did I grapple with trying to remember the basement show? You did, but it was, it was the same. It was actually, it was, uh, on the first floor of the venue. So it wasn't technically a basement, but, oh, okay. but the bands that you played with were definitely all of the ilk of like sort of more, more like the, like the senior describing, like the bands that would be playing with, with an AK press table at the back of the room and with the food, not bombs thing and having people up in between bands to speak about issues like right, the first right. night. And then the second night you were playing with the bands that were, you know, some, in some cases political, but for the most part, a little more in the snowboarding kind of world. Right. Yeah. That rings bells again. <laughs> so that, that, that wasn't the Elma combo. Stuff, that was, was the Elmo. It? Yeah. Oh, okay. It was. Okay. Yeah. Cool. It was two floors of the Elma combo though. So the top floor was like, the, right. uh, the oh segment. yes yes now i do i remember this all now i remember it all um i remember it, i probably mentioned this last time because i was so stoked that stevie ray vaughn had played there i don't think we talked about the fact that stevie ray vaughn had played there but uh no nope. did, did you ever see that video uh stevie ray vaughn at the elma combo kind of a famous uh live video uh i don't think i've ever seen that one i've seen a i've seen <laughs> Oh my God. Steve Ray Vaughn videos. Yeah. I've seen a couple of Steve Ray Vaughn videos, but no, I've not seen that one in particular, but there's also yeah, an Elvis was... Costello bootleg from there too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like huh. a, yeah, it was a combo show. It was a cool venue. That's for sure. I mean, I remember being, you know, I wasn't even really a blues fan, but Steve Ray Vaughn in like 1986, when I first picked up a guitar was, was a big name. Yeah. And I remember seeing the video, they played it on like, I don't know if it was good rocking tonight or something, but they played uh, Steve Ray Vaughn at the Elba combo. And I was like, Holy fuck, this guy's more intense than, uh, this guy's more intense than Metallica. Well, it's, uh, that venue also had like that. The stones played there back in the day. And then they also did a show there more recently. Um, I think in the mid two thousands or something too, oh, yeah. but it, it's, it was like a storied venue in Toronto. Like that was, you know, that, that, that's my CBGBs growing up. Like I, I went to shows there, like every weekend, every weekend. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's a good place. <laughs> did it, but at the time, did it feel like you were kind of like, you know, like bringing two scenes together? Like, I know you're mentioning the fact that like you had all these issues with, with, you know, bullshit that you had to deal with as well. But at the, in the same way, did you feel like you were kind of bringing these two worlds together? Um, or were you trying I, to bring these worlds together? Was that a, a hope at all? Or, um, that's a good question. What did young Chris think about all that? Uh, I don't know if I was thinking very much back then. Um, 
I don't. I, I was. I was more interested in the DIY basement scene. Yeah. I, it um, it reminded me a lot of um, tape trading in the early '80s uh, thrash metal scene, just because it was it was just it was purely sustained by people's enthusiasm rather than finding these club owners and bouncers and all this shit. Um, but I, we were more and more ending up at venues that were less DIY, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but, uh, we were definitely, I, I think we were kind of had our fingers dug into this idea of staying a basement, a DIY basement scene band, but we're being pulled out of that. And maybe just the way it looked was we were trying to do something like bring it together. But, uh, um, that's probably not what we were interested in, you yeah. know, yeah. to be honest. Well, like, what did you make of the success? Cause like, you know, you're saying you're obviously much younger at this point. And then to be a band that didn't want any of this and actively fought against getting any of this in a real way to suddenly have like lineups down the street two nights sold out at the same venue the fucking rolling stones and stevie ray vaughn played at um i don't know what we thought at the time but in retrospect i wish we had somebody who fucking counted the money (laughs) (laughs) yeah because we would all these shows with people lined up and stuff we would just leave with gas money and we wouldn't ask any questions because we were so fucking dumb and uh i think that got around and and uh, bar owners loved us because we just should, it would just be the three of us, you know, show up like literally us and maybe a friend who is driving the van in a lot of these cases. And we, somebody would walk up to whoever was putting on the show and they'd say, here's your 50 bucks. Oh, okay. Bye. You know, af- after there's <laughs> 600 people at the show. Yeah. <laughs> Paying like $14 each, not $14, but like 10 bucks each because there's like whatever it was, whatever bands. it was. Yeah. 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 No, it was, uh, that, that, yeah, sorry, go that on. was the, the, that was the disadvantage to being a, you know, a DIY, DIY basement scene band is that you just assumed everybody was on the up and up and why would somebody rip you off? You know, like, <laughs> well, yeah, cause well, you're also you know. like sleeping on people's floors. Like obviously, you know, that, you know, like that's what every band does, but at the same time, like, you know, you're at a point now where you're like, you're like selling out every show. You know, like there's, there's real success at this point. What was there a point when it kind of clicked in like, Oh shit, like this is actually happening. Like this is a career now. Um, I don't, I don't think so until like, uh, honestly, I don't think until 2009, um, that I thought, um, that I thought this is, this is sustainable. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and I'm not, I'm not quite sure why that is. Like, I guess, or no, maybe, maybe I don't know, man. It's so hard for me to like, remember what I was thinking about stuff. Yeah. I understand like, that. I, yeah. I, I don't remember ever thinking like, here we are. This is cause I guess because we were never looking for any of of whatever happened, you know. Yeah. Um. I, I guess. I guess what I'm trying to say is the things I was interested in uh, matching up with what was happening for us never kind of came together until 2009. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think when I felt like finally we're a real band, finally we're playing how we want to play. Um. We we've uh, adjusted or acclimatized to, uh, how the band is received and what kind of venues we're playing. And we can keep this going because we know it's good. I think before that I was always like, fuck, what, what are we doing? Is this half baked? Like we're going to keep doing it, but it never seemed like we had our shit together until 2009. Well, you're running a label too at that point, right? So like even with the label, it didn't feel like it was sustainable. I guess the label's a collective, right? The label, yeah, it was a collectively run label. And uh, I think by the early 2000s, the writing was on the wall for us as a collective. Um, I think we were, we just, we had a lot of fun Mm -hmm. doing that, doing the label, but I don't think 
Um, I think the way things are going with like digital downloads and stuff and, and um, the novelty of running the label for like five or six years wearing off and seeing that if you really want to run a label now, uh, this is like, I don't know, 2002, 2003, um, you got to hustle and hustling for business is fucking boring to me, to me, to me. And, uh, and I think other people in the collective shared that sentiment that, you know, it was nice helping bands and stuff, but we're not business people and we don't want to fucking hustle and debase ourselves going to music conferences, talking to people who are looking over your shoulder at the next person, you know, just like, fuck, fuck this shit. This mm-hmm. is not what we got into either being in a band or putting out other bands records for. So, um, we 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 uh that fizzled out um intentionally and and by the time it was really wrapped up again i guess what you've just you've just revealed to me what was also happening too by 2009 there was no more involvement with the label um and i think i was i was happier so Mm. It's wild. You put out some waste incredible time. <laughs> you put out unbelievable records, though. Like it's it's you know looking back on it, I know obviously that's a you know small consolation, but it is uh, for for a label that was around for such a short period of time. Like it put out you know some classic records, like records that are considered some of the best records to ever be put out from this country. Like what? Uh, the, the, uh, we did that record, the Randy record, which I guess isn't from this country, but, uh, but you know, like the international noise conspiracy, Greg McPherson band, you know, the, yeah. the Noam Chomsky stuff, uh, I love swallowing yeah. shit. I spy, uh, you know, like I think, uh, the consolidated record. That's, I'm glad you said that. I was, I was just wanted to see what you thought were like, cause, um, the ones that I really like looking back. Uh, are the Consolidator record, which if you listen to it now, sounds like it could have come out yesterday. That band um, ages so fucking well. Like it's a t- tragic how well they age because it's still yeah, all relevant. But yeah, even musically, that record is not, you know, it's not, doesn't really feel dated. No. And, and then the submission hold LP um, we put out towards the end, I think is like the, is just, it's something else. You know, and nobody really, they broke up right away. Like every band that signed a G7 <laughs> broke up right away. Um, but uh, such a great record. Yeah. No, they, and Warsaw, Warsaw Pack from Hamilton. Amazing. Um, yeah. So many cool little things. Greg McPherson, like you said. Awesome. Yeah. Like it was a great label. Like it's, it's uh, you know, like a, a cool range of bands too. Like and it was also awesome that it was just a different, thing on the canadian music landscape like a, as a fan to like look at it you know and i understand how economics of this stuff goes and why it had to go the way it went but it was cool that there was for a time an alternative yeah i yeah i think that that <clears throat> i think that for for even for the mainstream like that exclaim kind of whole crowd yeah i think people were kind of bemused by this label out of winnipeg operating out of this anarchist three-story building and it uh it yeah it did work in our favor there was some novelty to it and uh and i mean that still wasn't enough for us to keep it going (laughs) yeah that's the i guess the reality of uh of running a record label like it's it's kind of you gotta start putting out stuff you you really don't like if you wanted to yeah going yeah, we didn't, and we didn't want to do that. Obviously, um, you know, we made a huge fucking blunder. I thought about this the other day. That we uh, because the label had a mandate. If, if listeners don't know about it, it was you know a, uh, and we considered ourselves a, a politically radical label, wanting to support politically progressive artists and art, and which is totally subjective. But we were um, immersed in you know sort of this anarchist political culture at the time and we had the chance to put out s nephews in the meantime and in between time oh whoa and and we didn't do it because it didn't fit the mandate of the label and i just can't believe uh that happened (laughs) 
Like, fuck, it's the greatest record of all time. And Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. You know, but everyone gets their miss, right? You have to have one miss. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure there were plenty though, that you're glad you dodged or, or yeah. even question dodging. Yeah. I can't even remember any. I can't rem- I don't even know. Well, cause at a certain point, like there starts to become, uh, you know, like propaganda, you know, descendants of propaganda type thing out there. Like, you know, bands that are running around, you know, influenced by you, like, you know, coming of age, being, you know, influenced by your band sounding exactly like you in some cases, you know, Randy, for example, like, it's amazing how they have that one record that sounds a lot like propaganda too. Obviously they, they morphed many times into many amazing things, but they have that one record that's super influenced by you guys. Right. I remember hearing that, uh, I was in, uh, San Francisco for some reason, uh, at fat Mike's house who, who obviously owned, owns fat records that used to put out our records. And he showed me this, this CD with an ostrich on the front. <laughs> Cause I think that was the Randy record, right? It had like some airbrushed ostrich with eating a carrot or something. Does I ring a bell. No, I, I don't, I don't know that one. Oh no, that's the big wig record. I think. No, this was Randy for sure. Okay, because the Randy yeah. record that I'm thinking of, it's it's got like a bunch of sort of like act, vaguely looking activist kind of art of people raising their fists in the air. But that would have been like, that's not 90. their first record, is it? No, this is the Th- second is, record. Okay, this is, I'm talking like, it had to be 93, 94 when I first heard okay, this. Okay, that, yeah, that'd be the first record then. Because Mike was like, you got to hear this. And then he put it on. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, how the fuck? Is that us? <laughs> Except for the, the vocals were a bit different. But I was like, fuck, they're better than us. They play better than we do. Uh, no, they. it's 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 amazing. Like, and also in like Ontario, there's so many bands, you know? Like, there's so many bands. Like, I, I'm, I'm sure even my old band, You're in Trouble, had a song that was, I'm, I know we did, that was aping you guys. So it's... It, <laughs> You know, it's definitely, uh, it's amazing to kind of see the impact that you guys were having at different stages too, because they're still like, you know, once again, you're a band that sound has morphed and changed over time as well. So you probably get bands that are influenced by different periods of your band now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and most seem to be influenced by the first record. Uh, well, I don't know. I think, I think, you know, the record we're talking about now is where you guys really kind of, I don't know. I don't like find the voice like today's empires tomorrow at tomorrow's ashes just as like, Oh, it just opens. Like that's gotta be one of the best side one track ones ever. And you're a band that kind of oh, cool. perfected that in the genre and the time period. <laughs> well, I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, that record, um, when I hear it now, I just feel like Todd and I lost our minds and we're making George play everything too fast. <laughs> and, uh, like, cause I really like the songs, but I don't really like the way we perform them, um, on the record. Okay. I just, it's, I, I kind of wish we had a, I mean, everyone probably thinks this about the records, but that's the one that, uh, I really wish we had a do over. Really? Kinda like I wouldn't change the songs. I would just change how we pulled them off. Just, why just I would just chill out a little bit. Why do you think it was so frantic? Because Todd and I were like, it was it was again it was that struggle between um, the world we were uh, identified in, which was like this fat record scene that was morphing into sort of a hot water music thing. Um, and like the, we, we were really still into stuff like, or we really admired born against Los Crudos drop dead. Mm-hmm. And, and we were like, well, we don't play like that, but let's play like that, <laughs> do our own thing, but play, you know? So we're just barking out the words and playing Jord. I remember Jord being like, this is this too fast for the material. Like, it's just, there's we're telling him to put in more cymbal hits, more rolls, and you know, just a big fucking 
mess. <laughs> and it, it, you guys have been writing that record for for a while though, because like fuck the border. I remember you guys playing on that in uh, the Oshawa show, even or the Toronto show too. Yeah, but that song was actually an I Spy song. That was an I Spy song. One. That was an I Spy song that never got recorded, and and it actually, believe it or not, the middle part was wrapped. At one at one point, because the drummer was getting sick of, um, he was getting sick of punk stuff and wanted to do some hip hop stuff, and he insisted that they that Todd come up with a, a rap part, and so Todd was had initially rapped the middle, and uh, that kind of evolved into what it is now. So if you if you ever listen to it again, just try to imagine like the the genealogy. You can you can kind of hear how it could have been a rap at one point, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. When you're saying that now, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of able to picture the slight differences that would make it go that way. But yeah. oh, that's wild. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea it was an I Spy song. So that explains why that song, were, were all the other songs kind of written close to the album being recorded? I, I, yes, I would say so. And I don't think Fuck the Border would have even been on the record, but I just, I'd seen I Spy play it at a, at a food, not bombs benefit. And I was like, fuck man, that song cannot die. Like, I, I spy is gone, but we got to, can we please do that song? So, and I think there's this another song on there called suburbs or something that might've also been a nice spy song. Now that I'm saying this, uh, I'm not sure, but okay. Yeah. That's awesome though. So I guess like, um, so like the rest of the songs though, you know, like when you're writing them closer to the record, it's it's just like once again it's 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 that process of just trying to find the more aggressive sound that you're going through at that point because it is a much harder record than the other two previous ones. Yeah, like the, I think the songs when they were first probably put together in the practice space were probably not as fast and were maybe more sung. But as we got closer to to recording. We were Todd. It was Todd and I just ramping stuff up, and I I have this memory of Todd and I um, listening back to some of our the demos we were making in the basement on an old cassette recorder. And anybody who remembers the old cassette recorders remembers that if you accidentally pressed play and fast forward at the same time, um, it would play back through your speakers at at twice the speed. Yeah, and I remember I remember hitting it this practice tape, hitting the play and fast forward at the same time. And it played for like two seconds, like at this hyper speed. And Todd and I, you know, our heads just, we looked at each other like, dude. And he was like, dude. And then that was weird. It was like, we're going to, that's how we have to make the record sound. That's what we thought we were doing. And then when I hear the record, it sounds like, yeah, everything's too fast. Because we were trying to make it sound like a sped up cassette tape. Yeah. Uh, That record, though, you did tour a lot, right? Kind of. Um my whole perspective kind of. is based from Toronto, looking at you in Toronto. So anytime you come to Toronto, I'm like, Oh, they're yeah. touring a lot these days. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that tour we did like some two month thing with a veil. Um, so it probably looked like we were everywhere at all times, but we, that might've been all we did for that record. I can't even remember, but, um, we actually, I think we toured more again, starting around 2009 is, was to until, until now, until a, a few years ago, was our most active time touring. Did you ever get? Did you, are you like? Did you ever look back on your lyrics and and realize like how kind of dead on you were with stuff you were saying then? Like how kind of like unbelievably bleak? Like did you have a a, a best case scenario in mind too that you were thinking like maybe the world would turn out like, or did you know it was going to go this way the whole time? Um. Well. <laughs> Uh, I guess my gut instinct was, I don't know. Again, it's hard to imagine what I was thinking because some of the, some of the the lyrics are so, there's such a, a naivete to them that, that I had to have believed, I had to have been optimistic on some level, but I, I also think how could I not, how could everybody not have seen what was coming? You know, um, 
it just I I've I guess I've always been like a a dour person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ever since I was a, ki- a little kid, you know. So I don't know. It's it's once again like you know it's like the reading list you provided in uh, the second albums like kind of you know all those books still apply you know and that and those books were like that's like a Swiss Army knife for the time we're in right now for kind of understanding <laughs> the world we're in right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think, what do I think? <laughs> um, I think it's, I think it's always been this way since, since people started living in cities and called it civilization. Yeah. Um, I think that was, we set ourselves on a path and, and this is the logical conclusion mm-hmm. and we're, we're sitting in it right now. Yeah, man, it got real bleak there. I didn't, I didn't want to throw that out there. I kind of like, it's just once again, like you're talking about the consolidated record aging well. And it's like, I know you say you're, you're a little naive on some of those songs, but at the same time, there's a, a real truth teller quality to them that <laughs> unfortunately rings very true in 2019. In a way that I, I you know, kind of thought it would in in the year nineteen ninety nine, but definitely in the back of my mind, hoped it wouldn't turn out this way. I'm like, well, if we all start doing all this good stuff, you know, we could we could pull it out, you know. Could, well, could you know a- what? Now, now that you're saying that, I do remember feeling around the time like pre nine eleven, which is the critical juncture mm-hmm. in in. sort of public protest history a couple years prior to that starting with the wto in seattle and uh the ftaa in quebec city where it seemed like um the general public was somewhat galvanized uh against um the world economic order like not to exaggerate it but there was a feeling of that you know Mm -hmm. there was literally tens of thousands of people uh, taking to the streets. And there was a sense that um, there was a sense that there was an opportunity there in, in my mind. I remember, I'm, I'm glad you, you, you jogged this memory. I, I, I do remember feeling like, wow, did, I mean, uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but there something's going on here. And then nine 11 happened. And then anybody who, who fucking protested anything was public enemy number one, you know? So everything died, uh, after that for, for a number of years, really like people were, people were scared to be perceived, um, as opposed to, um, the state, the system, you know, in, in some real respect, at least, at least a, a big enough segment that there was a critical mass that was drawn away from what was happening, prior to nine 11, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. Like you're, you bring those up. They, we, people shut down Seattle, people shut down Quebec city. Like there was protesters that shut down whole cities back then. And it, you're right. It felt like things could have uh, definitely gone a different way at that point. In some yeah. Way. And it seemed like a lot of, not even just the, the protests on themselves, but there was spinoffs of radical projects and, you know, the, just a lot of activists, movement and organization was uh on the rise and and then was just with on one day it was just gone you know it's also wild to think back to that time and like you know even before that Tiananmen square where technology was kind of on the people's side like the state hadn't really caught up and so people were able to use like beepers and cell phones and and just these sorts of things to to help themselves. But now it's like, if you use these things, it's, it, you're, you're, and I, I sound very paranoid when I say this, but I mean, you know, you're tracked. If, if they want to shut you down, they've got all your information at a keystroke away. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's paranoid at all. I think, I mean, it's funny that we call these things, our phones. They're not, they're not our phones. They're, they belong to the people that surveil us. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't, I don't mean that in a, in a, in a fucking nut bar conspiracy sense. It's just, I mean, it's the reality. I'm sure. We're, <laughs> we may be tracked as a consumer base right now, but there's more to it than, um, than just that. So, 
Yeah, I mean, we. That, I mean, that that is part of the problem that we we are. Things are so far gone. We're not even regarded as citizens. We're regarded as consumers, and they've given us these devices, or they sold us these devices that belong to them because they control them. Oh yeah, I couldn't imagine in the '90s like a corporation coming to you and being like, "Give me your fingertips, your your uh, fingerprints, your face." And yeah. all your passwords, because uh, that's what you need to get into this device that you own. And yeah, this, yeah, this device that will be um, listening to the audio of your life and then generating ad content based on what you're saying. And it's crazy. It's, it's wild, crazy. It's ter- it's and it's and it's also it's happened so willingly. Like it felt like there was such a resistance to this at some point, but now it's like. It's like with the, the, the bright fireworks, they've drawn us all in because it's, it's like Instagram and there's, there's like, you know, uh, serotonin drops that we can get from our phones now. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All social media. Yeah. Oh man, it's bleak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, back to shit that, uh, seems so mundane in comparison. Um, so you did eventually have a falling out with, fat records. I know you've kind of talked about this, uh, you know, once again on your own podcast and stuff like that, but like, and I've, and I've talked to Mike about this too. And so I don't feel like I'm talking behind his back and he's coming back on the podcast in a couple of weeks. So I'll talk to him about it again, but, and other guests have talked about it too, but do you think there was a point where, where he began to change and your relationship with him as someone that runs your label, you know, cause I've definitely been in label situations where, you know, things changed and it became, went real sour, real fast. But I'm just wondering because there seems to be you know, like a moment where, you know, will you leave? Yeah. I mean, we've always uh, been culturally very, I mean, there's been a huge chasm culturally between us and um, I guess Mike, I'm sort of representing this Southern California uh, skate punk snowboard scene of the nineties kind of thing. Like it was always hard for us to, understand um why they did the things the way they did and i think mike thought we were silly for the things we did Mm -hmm. and um that gap never really closed and i think i i think there was some overstated resentment on our part when he decided after spending you know a decade to 15 years actively uh, dismissing any sort of political activism, um, you know, through his band, no effects and suddenly wanted to be, uh, at the front of the parade for this anti Bush stuff, um, that we felt was, was, um, was, was inadequate and, and, and because it was so celebrity based, uh, wasn't sustainable and wasn't actually meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I might have different, I don't know what I would think of it now. I'm, I'm desperate for any sort of, uh, glimmer of hope. Yeah. But at the time I was, just, I just, it, it really turned, it, it turned our stomachs, I think. And that was the, the initial source of, of conflict. And then, you know, when he, when that stuff kind of petered out, like when his interest in that disappeared, like, like it does for many things for Mike, um, he reverted to this, you know, he put out that bank. It was like a, a tabloid punk picture magazine. Do you remember that thing? Yeah. Well, was, punk, I'm trying punk, to remember what it's called now. Oh, but it like was punk, punk confidential, punk confidential. That was it. Yeah. And, and it was like, Oh, okay. So that was a passing fad. The activism was a fad. Um, again, I'm not mad at the guy for this. Like he was just doing, he's just being himself. Um, but it just didn't, it, it provided this, this tension and it culminated in, in us just feeling like, I mean, we'd felt for a long time. We really weren't part of that scene. We didn't, we lived so far away. We didn't have a connection to these bands musically or culturally or politically. And, um, and I think we just had to go our separate ways at some point. Like I, I kind of get the impression though, that he actually believed it would work. You know, like there was a punk punk voter was 
earnest in a way, you know, like in the conversations I've had with him that, you know, which I, I don't know, once again, like you say, it's, it seemed unsustainable, but there was like a belief that this might actually do it and that there was going to be, I don't know, some sort of, I don't know, revolution, maybe like a, a very naive kind of hope in that, in that maybe. Uh, maybe, but I don't know what kind of revolution John Kerry uh, is going to lead. Um, which, I mean, I, I understand this. I, I probably wouldn't make such a big deal about it these days, you know, if if the if something similar was happening. Like, we're, I would be happy to be rid of Donald Trump by almost any means necessary. Yeah. But it, it doesn't mean that, that if the means are a John Kerry or Hillary Clinton type, that doesn't mean you're done. But for Mike, my impression was like that to him, that's the victory. Just get a Democrat in there. We're all good. Yeah. You know, the, I think if you're going to summon people's energy and hope, and 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 then use the nomenclature uh, of of radical politics to sell your message. You have to you have to what you're actually building has to be more long term and more, for lack of a better term, quote unquote, radical. Something more different that's actually going to um, be meaningfully meaningfully democratic and and sustain life on the planet instead of just sustaining this this uh, liberal version of of you know corporate capitalism so anyways like fuck what do i care at this point <laughs> you know like but it, whatever it, like yeah you know it, it was same very much say like you know and i bought this book from your table too but like that uh uh, new bottle, same wine, that Chomsky book about how Bush mm-hmm. and Clinton were the same, you know, and then Bush Jr. is very much an extension of that. And, you know, and I'm sure John Kerry would have been very much an extension of that, but almost like that's the precursor for what we have now, which is now we're dealing with the the result of that, of these two parties that were very similar. Um, you know, and we have the same thing in Canada, obviously, like, you know, we have, mm-hmm. it's not that much better up here. We just have you know, a much prettier shade of lipstick on the one of them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it seems to me that, that the, uh, the liberals or centrists or the Democrats, what they, their idea of, of competing against the far right Republicans is to actually adopt their platform rather than come up with a, with one that is is actually far more polarizing, you know, to actually galvanize and, and, and encourage and inspire people who are, who are in despair over the far right. You know, it's, it's just this, like the far right just laughs at it. Like, okay, we'll go farther. Right. And then you'll just, then the Democrats will just adopt every part of our platform that's important to us so that if they win, we're still, it's still a far right, you know, state, you know? So, yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah, it's just amazing how right it's moved. The whole conversation's moved. Um, yeah, and, and it's it's yeah. now yeah, it's different. Like it's just like you're saying, it's it was like it's such a different time, you know. And it's, yeah, man, the part twos are so much more bleak than the part ones. The part ones, I can just nerd <laughs> out about all the fun stuff. Now we have to talk about reality. Um, yeah. uh, well, this has been amazing, Chris. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on again. And uh, one day in the future, I'd love to have you in some capacity in face to face in a conversation. Nice. That would be a I'll lot of fun. It. That would be a lot of fun. I'll for bring, me. I'll bring my face. Okay. I will bring, I'll bring my face and, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll bring, I'll bring props too. It'll be like a carrot top show. <laughs> right on. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right, Damien. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Chris, for coming back on the show. When you heard right there, we will do an in-person one. And I think we'll be in, in, in better spirits, hopefully, for that one. Um, hopefully, the world will be figured out by then. That's what I'm really hoping. I got my fingers crossed on that one. Um, yeah, but I, I shouldn't, you know, leave you with uh, something so depressing because, you know, times like this, people that 
suffer from mental health issues, people that are prone to issues of anxiety and depression, um, it can be really distressing what's happening in the world right now. And as much as we can't ignore what's happening because we have to fight what's happening in the world right now, we have to stand up to a return of fascism and, uh, you know, just, just all sorts of, uh, nightmarish scenarios that are unfolding right now. It's also important to make sure that you find the joy in life, you know, and as depressing and as horrible and as tragic and as sad as this time that we live in can feel, there's also hope and there's also positivity and there's also, you know, change that can happen still. Um, so yeah, I just don't want people to get too down because after listening to this, I was certainly a little bit down and, uh, I think we can all still, uh, try and live this life as best we can, you know, and that doesn't mean as selfishly as we can, but at the same time, you know, trying to find that balance, trying to find a way to maintain your sanity, uh, but also still being aware of of what's going on around us and what role we have in that and what kind of privileges that we enjoy, uh, cost people in other parts of the world or people around us. Um, anyway, uh, just something to bear in mind right now that, uh, it, it is uh, a sad time, but you know, it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless as much as this episode would lead you to believe otherwise. I, truly still have hope myself. And I think Chris does too, you know, um, we just both weren't at a particularly hopeful point in our day during this conversation. So that's it. Uh, next week on the show, but once again, I can't, (laughs) it makes it seem like I'm apologizing for this episode. I'm not, I appreciate Chris coming on so much. Uh, I, I, you know, he's a huge influence on me as I've stated many, many times in multiple, multiple places. And, uh, I really appreciate him coming on and being that open about what he's feeling like right now. Um, cause it gave me a chance to be open about it too. And hopefully it gives you a chance to be open about it too. And let's talk and let's, you know, share these things, you know, no point in keeping it all bottled up inside. Whew, whew. Okay. We gotta, we gotta transition into something a little more frivolous for a moment. Uh, how about hair metal? Yeah. There's, if you're, if you're going to map out a spectrum, I think, you know, punk and hair metal seem diametrically opposed in a lot of ways, but But as many of us know, they are intermingled in a very, very deep way. And nowhere is that better illustrated than in the Los Angeles scene of the 1980s. And for many people, I want to say around the world, that scene, the glam metal scene, is given sort of a physical embodiment in one person for a lot of people through Ricky Rackman a guy who was a conduit for the world to see a lot of this metal stuff through Headbangers Ball on MTV. He also is the owner of The Cat House, does an absolutely phenomenal podcast called the Ricky Rackman uh, Cat House Hollywood Podcast. Now, this is a podcast that is very different from Turned Out a Punk, but if you go to podcasts for stories, you cannot do too much better than this podcast. He's got some stories that'll, that'll twist your melon as they say. But once again, we're talking about the intersection of that glam metal and that punk rock hardcore scene. And this is found in personal personification through Ricky Rackman, because before the cat house, before headbangers ball, before bringing heavy metal to the living rooms of young teenagers around America and ultimately kind of around the world, he was a punk rock hardcore kid in Los Angeles. This is a monster of an episode. This is someone who has influenced more people into getting into aggressive music than just about anyone else. I think like, you know, just by eyeballs on the screen, uh, his philosophy, his approach to music, his thoughts on glam metal. Oh, all of it is incredible. This is a great episode and he still has amazing taste. He still has amazing taste. And, and, and if you're like, well, I watch Headbangers Ball. I don't think his taste was that amazing. Well, we'll talk about all of that stuff next week on the show. And we talk about Darby crash, you know, where else, who else in the world could you talk to that can talk to you about guns and roses, 
can talk to you about, you know, Motley Crue and that whole world, but then can also sit down and, and talk to you about the germs and can sit there and talk to you about turnstile. You know, this is a guy who's got an ear. So I'm not going to hype it up anymore. That was the longest outro I think I've ever done for an episode, but I'm really excited about this one. This is one that came out of nowhere for me. I, I had heard that he was into punk rock, but I had no idea. So everyone, everyone has to tune in next week for this show. And that'll be dropping, I'm going to say next Tuesday. And then I'm probably going to have another episode dropping by the end of the week because I'm going to be going to Camp Dino Jr., Camp Fuzz, with uh, a lot of friends. And it's going to be a, it's going to be an amazing, if not interesting hang. There's a lot of Turned Out of Punk alumni that is going to be hanging out this weekend at, uh, or this week, I should say, at Camp Fuzz. There's going to be Lou Barlow, Jay Maskis, Murph was even on the show, Fred Armisen's going to be there, and who knows who else I run into. But I'm going to be recording some of that and posting it. Hopefully, yeah, I'm going to try and get that up by the end of this week, too, so you can hear it, like fresh, fresh for your ear holes. Uh, and that's it. All right. I want to thank you all for listening and bearing with me as tonight was a little bit of a rambling episode, huh? I rambled in the beginning and then I rambled at the end and that's it. Uh, stay positive, stay hopeful. Please go out there and sign your organ donors cards, try and make this world a better place on the micro level. And then hopefully it'll get better on a macro level. Uh, go out there and make your own culture. Tell all your friends about what we do here and stay safe. And I'll see you next week. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening.